So finally, we're gonna do the Thucydides episode. This is Thucydides on World War Three. Hopefully not too pertinent to what's going on right now. <laughs> Somewhat pertinent, but hopefully not a perfect analogy. Um, basically, in the Hellenic Age, uh, there was a massive war between Athens and Sparta, two super superpowers of the time, and it tore the Greek world apart, created an opening for the Persians to kind of take over. So we're going to talk about that war today for a host of different reasons. One is, it was really a conflict between a dictatorship and a democracy. And the question is, when a dictatorship is fighting a democracy, can the democracy win? And how can it win, right? Because we talk about this with the US and China a lot, where China has this concentrated like power of action. They can think long-term, allocate resources in a particular way. The US can't do it the same way. We're more short-term, we're like, gearing up for the next election. And and so the question is, with that dynamic, can a democracy succeed? Mm -hmm. And this is a huge case study of how that played out. Right. So I'm not going to jump the gun, because there's a lot of like, there's a lot of back and forth intermediate wins and losses. So the final result doesn't answer the question. The whole like pattern of like strategic interaction for the, for the entirety of the war gives us some answers to that question. Yeah. 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 Totally makes sense. Um, so just to be clear, we're talking about the Peloponnesian War here. Um, and the title of the book is just The Peloponnesian War by Thucydides, right? Mm -hmm. um, so Thucydides was a general, right? Mm -hmm. um, as well as a historian. Um, and he was on the Athenian side, is that correct? Yeah. Um, so just... Uh, uh, Another side note, other than the relevance of the Peloponnesian War and this idea of like the dictatorship versus a democracy, and this is one of the first examples of that because Athens was one of the first democracies, yeah. or the first, arguably. This book was also very Im impactful because it was kind of one of the first modern history books, if you will, mm -hmm. like written. In, it kind of defined like the way history books were written for for quite a while. It's had a big impact on the field of history. Yeah. Not like history itself, but like the way history is recorded and studied and talked about. Yeah, and, and Thucydides made a, a real effort to try to be objective. So the other book that's quoted in as like one of the first histories is Herodotus's book. I forget the name of it, but Herodotus was the other historian that's quoted as like one of the first modern historians. He, his approach is much more anthropological though. And is like much more mythological almost, whereas Thucydides is like, he really gets into the minutia of like every troop movement, um, you know, every aspect of strategic assessment at every point in the war. He goes through year by year until he just mysteriously like stops writing the book at one point. So Thucydides himself says like, he hopes that all the detail he's put into this book hasn't made it unreadable. And this was a like tough read. Yeah. I, I was sitting on this for quite a while because, again, just like the minutia of going back and forth uh, for every single troop movement across like these land masses that I don't recognize, it's like slow to get through. Mm -hmm. But in the midst of that, you have a lot of great insight on like various aspects of human nature. How long was the Peloponnesian War? And I guess what portion of the war does this book cover? Like, does it start 
with background before the war, or does it start with the the start of the war? It starts with background before the war. Okay. Yeah, it starts with background before the war, and it ends uh, before the end of the war. Okay. So, so it's covering probably at least like a 20-year period, right? Yeah, actually, I can, I can tell you right here. In ex- extreme detail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um... And I think a couple of things that helped me like get more out of this book. One is, there's a really good illustrated edition that has a lot of maps of troop movements. Mm-hmm. I have that one, and I have like the non-illustrated one, and like trying to read the non-illustrated one is a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. It's like trying to like read how to swim. <laughs> the only thing that personally helped me like connect with this book is being on a boat. And, like, just getting really drunk and, like, listening to, like, a lot of metal. <laughs> I was like, wow, there's a lot of, like, futile struggle and people losing their lives and, like, this disruption that's, like, you know, tearing their world apart. I was like, I understand what's happening here now more than just, like, lines on paper, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> While other people were, like, sitting there, you know, like, scrolling on their phone, maybe reading a paperback, like, with their little margarita, you were just, like, in the... You were, like, below deck drinking, like, whiskey and reading Thucydides. <laughs> yeah, I was crushing whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> no, the bartender almost cut me off. <laughs> I feel like I was pretty responsible, but... Were you reading too aggressively? No, I think it was just... I was, like, the last person to wake up on the ship. Oh, okay. And he was like, yo, dude, just, like, go away. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I I do recommend that as part of the journey of this, and specifically the album uh, In the Court of the Dragon by Trivium. Hell yeah. Um, There's a lot of good songs on there that exemplify experiences in this book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, so as far as, as far as it goes, one of the things that this book talks about is like why nations go to war in the first place. So this concept of Thucydides trap, um, there's this political scientist at the Kennedy school called Graham Allison, and he came up with this term, which is basically like when a rising power and an established power by the nature of their interaction, kind of, like, move inexorably towards war, even though people in both camps don't want that. Mm -hmm. And you can see why that's, like, super relevant to today with the U.S. and China. And that's, like, often where this term is, like, you know, utilized. Right. Um, So the answer that Thucydides provided is, like, fear, honor, and interest are what drive conflict. So in the case of, like, Athens and Sparta... During the Persian War, which is, like, the 300, you know, Leonidas, like, kicking the guy, like, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, the Athenians actually rallied the, the Greeks and, like, kind of saved the Greek world. Mm-hmm. But in doing so, they massively expanded their influence. Right. And so they kind of became this, this rising power, and they had a massive navy built up from that, um, a lot of resources. And so their their influence operations and their kind of, like, expansionist tendencies kept going right which put a lot of fear into the Spartans um, which laid this foundation where all it took is a small disagreement or a small set of disagreements to like spark a broader conflict mm-hmm yeah yeah that's scary scary yeah. stuff 
Because um, like you say, I mean, I don't think the vast majority of people in the U.S. or in China would want a war. I don't think anyone really wants a war between the U.S. and China. It would be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Um both on the human level, on the economic level, um, I, I mean, just in every way, it would be a disaster. Yeah, it would, you know, set, set, us, set humanity back, you know, any amount of time from, like, years to, like, centuries, depending on how it goes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a, yeah, you never know. If nukes get involved, then, yeah, we're going back to the Stone Age, but hopefully not. Yeah, yeah, and, I mean, I think the one, one, um, you know, reassuring thing is like there's very little appetite for war in the U.S. right now. Yeah, because we've been at war for so long. Yeah, um, and then I think the second thing is like the Chinese, um, you know, Politburo is like very historically aware, so they know about this. Like, yeah. Threat. Um, but still, I mean, fear, honor, and interest, right? So as an example of how that might play out. There's a parallel, obviously, that's being drawn lately with, between the Ukraine and Taiwan, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes down to a combination of things. One is honor. You know, Russia is like, the Ukraine is is part of Russia, rightfully. It's our frontier territory. They don't exist as an independent nation. They're oppressing Russians, ethnic Russians in Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, they're making those claims. Mm-hmm. And China says very similar things about Taiwan. Yeah. Where they're like, hey, Taiwan isn't a country. Taiwan is part of China. These are our brothers and sisters. Like, you know, they're supposed to be, like, part of this country. And, like, um, for a foreign power to prevent that, you know, kind of triggers that impulse of honor. That being said, I think it's a pretext for expansionism in the case of Putin, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, I think you look at, I mean, it fear honor and interest right yeah i think to me interest is probably the most important especially now yeah um where like you know politics feels much more i don't know machiavellian much more transactional than Mm -hmm. it was in hellenic times you know i think honor plays less of a part in in a way but i think that's also pretty arguable yeah look you know Actually, it's very good, good that you said that because actually we can jump ahead. Okay. Um, there's a famous part of this um, book called The Melian Dialogue mm-hmm. where this tiny little island called Milos um, is neutral and Athens is like trying to get them to come over to their side. Um, and they're like, hey, like we're not friends or enemies of any of you guys. Why can't we just go in peace and like be on our own? And Athens like lays out for them this like cold calculation um and athens like you know good guys and bad guys like thucydides is pretty even-handed about that but you can tell thucydides has like an affection for the athenians of course where he kind of frames them you know as the good guys yeah i mean he was an athenian general so but he's pretty even-handed yeah yeah um but his opinions do come through so let me find the million dialogue and i'll I'll read this for you because it's pretty fascinating that that thucydides would write this about his own side yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, while you're looking at that, I'll just close on um, the point that I was going to make, which is yeah. basically just that for both Putin and for the Chinese, you know, Putin in Ukraine, the Chinese in Taiwan, the interest for their nations in controlling that land is massive. I mean, in Putin's case in the Ukraine, it's like this slow expansion of NATO, you know, closer and closer to Russian borders. Um, and then obviously um, 
you know, I think they're also like natural resource reserves. But I think it's really about the the traditional Russian sphere of influence, you know, getting compressed by the West and by NATO. And Putin really views like Russia as like this great civilization, this separate from Western civilization. And he wants to like preserve that. And for the Chinese side, I mean, I think the interest is even more in Taiwan because Taiwan is such a strategic asset for any side any country would would love to have taiwan as an ally because one they control these shipping channels in the south china sea which is one of the most important you know um shipping channels in the world right it's like the flow of trade between um most of asia goes through the south china sea and then there's also the the semiconductor angle um right like they make the world's chips um which is such a like terrifying like idea yeah yeah i mean whether it's the chinese or the americans if either side had their access to tmc's tsmc's fabs um cut off tsmc is the taiwan semiconductor corporation they manufacture vast majority of chips in the world um it would be catastrophic for the economy and for the military establishment. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's really interesting from a geopolitical standpoint because both sides have a very deep interest in um, kind of keeping access to Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes sense. I mean, also as a staging base for amphibious invasion. Yeah. There's a fear angle too, in a, in a way for China. Right. Um. But I do think the interest is is higher there since like yeah the if the world's electronics are powered by TSMC I mean I think the the one thing is we're at more of a disadvantage because the Chinese have you know first of all as a dictatorship the ability to spin up and allocate resources uh, as they see fit they also have you know much lower cost of labor and they make more stuff right now mm-hmm. so if Taiwan was to just be taken off the map. Uh, as a as a piece, like they would be less hurt than we are, I believe. I think that may be true from a from a resource standpoint, from a amphibious landing standpoint, and like you know having you know like a, a island right off your coast uh, where an enemy force can like stage you know and fire missiles from and stuff like. Yeah, I think that's definitely true to to an extent. I think the other thing that's interesting though is that the Chinese. Well, so so another interesting thing about the geopolitical importance of semiconductor manufacturing is that the technology to build the machines that are used in fabs is also very advanced. Yeah. Um, and almost all of that technology and expertise is in the West. Um, some of it in the U.S., some of it in like Sweden with Ericsson, Nokia, a few other of these companies. That's a good point. Um, so basically what happened, I mean, it's just such a global supply chain. So like the, without Western technology, the Chinese or the Taiwanese can't build fabs to make new chips. And without Taiwanese expertise, uh, the U.S. can't really build fabs at the quality that the Taiwanese can build and operate them. And without Chinese assemblers... U.S. companies don't know how to 
build products at scale um, at the right prices and the right quality. Without U.S. designs and U.S. companies building stuff, the Chinese factories don't have enough stuff to build and keep them at full capacity. So it's really, I don't know, yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and like this level of being intertwined, you know, is a challenge because, you know, it creates this kind of like standoff where no one can say anything about anything, right? Yeah. You know, where you look at the like stuff with the Uyghurs and stuff, like, um, the reason why the U.S. like won't intervene is like this being intertwined to this degree, right? Yeah. Um, and I also think it's because the Chinese are much more uh, sophisticated at playing these like softer games of influence, you know? Yeah. So for a lot of U.S. companies, they're completely like in the pocket of the Chinese. Yeah. Maybe not in an explicit way, but I mean, Apple, the NBA, like, you know, uh, all of Hollywood, most big banks, yeah, most of our like wealthy elite, um, not all of them, but significant number, right, are heavily invested in China, uh, if not explicitly pro Chinese, right, yeah, right. And actually, that comes back up later in in this war as well in a very interesting way. Um, but the million dialogues, so if you're yeah. on our interest, right? So Thucydides relays this um, but really like you know some of these dialogues he was there for some he wasn't and in some cases he tried to like gather the information to be as accurate as he could in other cases he's using it to kind of like explore a point mm-hmm. and it's not like super accurate but it captures like the essence of a relationship um, it's hard to say which one this was but basically the millions are this you know tiny group of people a tiny island and in ancient Greece, any infringement on the sovereignty of a city-state was tantamount to slavery to them. Okay. So the millions view this thing of, like, it, being forced to, like, ally with the Athenians, being under the Athenian, like, umbrella, as being, like, relegated to slavery. So basically, they're, like, all we can reasonably expect from this negotiation is war, um, if we have to prove to have right on our side and refuse to submit, or in the contrary case, slavery. Um, you know, and basically the Athenians are like, basically, you know as well as we do that right as the world goes is only in question between equals and power. While the strong do what they can, the weak suffer what they must. So the good guys in this story they're basically like listen like it's not about what's right and wrong we're strong you're weak and like you need to just like go along with this like or else Um, (laughs) and the millions are like hey like you shouldn't destroy what's our common protection namely the privilege of being allowed in danger to invoke what's fair and right and even to profit by arguments um you know not strictly valid if they can be persuasive and you're as much interested in this as any as your fall would be a signal for the heaviest vengeance and an example for the world to meditate upon. So what they're saying is like, just because we're, we're small and you can't push us around, like, you know, it might not make that much like practical sense for us to invoke what's right and be like, hey, you shouldn't just like crush us. You may be on the other side of this at some point and like, it's good for all of us to like honor this, this, um, you know, 
th- this moral treatment of each other. Mm-hmm. And this comes back later because the Athenians ultimately lose the war. Right. Uh, and some horrible shit happens to them along the way. So it's funny how this... Well, not funny, but it's unfortunate how this turns out. So ultimately, what do they do to Milos? Do they just push them into doing what they want? Wipe them off the map? Um, well, what they say to Milos next is they're like, hey, we don't want to destroy you because it would be good for us to like be able to influence you and it's good for you to not be destroyed. And Milos is like, you know... Um, Let's see here. Milos is like, hey, we have hope that the Spartans are like, our allies are going to come and save us. Um, you know, we're related to them. And Athenians are basically like, hope, dangerous comforter, may be indulged in by those who have abundant resources. But its nature is to be extravagant, and those who go so far as to stake their all upon the venture see it in its true colors only when they're ruined. So basically, like, you should. You should lose hope, and it's bad to have hope. <laughs> you just give up. Um, and Milos is like, "Hey, listen, like we trust the gods is gonna grant us are, are gonna grant us fortune because we're men fighting against the unjust." And then the Athenians say, "You know, of the gods we believe and of men we know that by a necessary law of their nature they rule wherever they can." So they're like, it's as natural for us to crush you or more natural for us to crush you than it would be for us to not crush you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Which is true in a way. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... So this is an interesting book because, like, the Athenians routinely capture a city and kill everyone, like, all the men and, like, enslave all the women and children. Mm-hmm. And it's not even, like, referred to as if it's like, oh, and that was bad. It's just, like, no comment. Like, that just is what it is. Yeah. And they're the good guys. And, like, the Spartans, like... I, I made air quotes when I said good guys. <laughs> the Spartans, like, their whole society is built on, like, slavery. Yeah. Um, and, like, an uh, extremely stringent eugenics program. So, they're, like, no... It's a very different time. Yeah, for sure. For sure it is. Um... But I'll, I'll jump ahead a little bit here. Yeah, so basically, um, they, the Athenians withdrew from the conference because the Melians are like, hey, we're going we're gonna to stick to our guns. We believe in justice. The Spartans will save us or the gods will save us. And, um, you know, they were completely destroyed. And what happened here? The Athenians put to death all the grown men, sold the women and children for slaves, and sent out colonists for themselves and settled the place. So, the Melian dialogue. That's rough for the Melians. Yeah, it's also the first um, first statement in a way of like a philosophy of political realism, um, and it's it's just like really it's interesting that someone would describe their own side that way, you know. Yeah, it is. It is, like, not trying to frame it in that, you know, we were doing the right thing and blah, 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 but just, like, we were doing what we were allowed to do because we were fucking stronger. Yeah, yeah. That is interesting. Yeah, and there's, like, two interpretations of this dialogue. One is that the Athenians had kind of degraded as a society over time, um, and in that degradation, this is what they've come to, and the other is that 
they were always kind of of this moral bent, um, and it was only exposed in, at this time. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, with the whole like you know the slavery and 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 killing everyone and and those types of things, it's. I mean, it's difficult for us to think about from a modern lens because the ancient world was just like a savage fucking place. Uh, I mean, the world was a savage fucking place. It still is in many places, but like until a few hundred years ago, the things that were seen as just like normal and acceptable in everyday life would like shock us to our very core Mm -hmm. today, you know? Um, Those things like, I'm, I'm trying to remember who it is, but... I think it was one of the Achaemenid Persian emperors, like Cyrus or Xerxes or, or someone like that. But they, you know, took over some town, uh, some city that had been, like, resisting their invasion. And then because they had been resisting them, they, like, brought out all the nobles, had them, like, stand outside. And then, like, brought out all of their sons, killed them all in front of their parents then, like, raped all of their daughters and sold them into slavery and then killed them. It was like... Yeah. And that was just, like, normal. You know, it was like, yeah, well, I guess we shouldn't have lost. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's hard to fathom. It's hard to fathom through a modern lens. Also, like, they just, like, invoke the right of conquest a lot, where they're like, hey, we can do this because it's, like, the right of conquest. Basically, like finders keepers are like we won so we can do whatever we want (laughs) that's like a valid legal argument in this it's crazy yeah it's 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 shocking um it's definitely shocking it speaks to this concept uh i don't know nietzsche had this idea of like slave morality versus master morality Mm -hmm. Um, and the ancient world is much more colored by like this this master morality in a way where they're like you know the strong are, are good, um, might is right, and again, the strong do what they will, the weak accept what they must. Um, whereas slave morality is much more like, you know, it's, 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 it's more of a Christian morality. Like, the, the person who's, like, the lowest and the person who's the highest are in some sense the same. Um, it's, you know, whatever. What, what, what's the thing? It's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for, like, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle... <laughs> uh, or, or shit like that. And I think that has its like flaws as well. Um, but when you're talking about just like the the sheer violence and the justification of violence, you see the the downside of the master morality at play. Right. Yeah. 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 I think the downside of the slave morality is it, it makes people smaller, um, and it kind of like prioritizes. Um, it, it it elevates like weakness in a way. You know? Yeah. Obviously, the answer isn't to, like, crush everyone and burn their city. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> we can find a middle ground, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's good to lift weights and also good to not crush your enemies beneath <laughs> your boot heels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so... In terms of, like, the Athenians versus the Spartans, um, they had this, like, really strong contrast in character. Um, that's well captured in this, um, in this speech by the Corinthians. 
So basically, they're like, the Athenians are addicted to innovation. Their designs are characterized by swiftness, alike in conception and execution. They have a genius for keeping what they have accompanied, or sorry, the Spartans have a genius for keeping what they have accompanied by a total want of innovation. Um, and when forced to act, they never go far enough. The Athenians are adventurous beyond their power, daring beyond their judgment, and endanger their sanguine. The Spartans, um, you know, are not that. They fancy that from danger there is no release. They mistrust even what's sanctioned by their judgment. And essentially this, like, difference in character and approach characterizes, like, their interactions, like, throughout the entire war. Hmm. Um, with some interesting exceptions. Interesting. Yeah. So you think about the U.S. and China, there's a similar, similar element, perhaps, where... The U.S. is known for innovation. It tends to be a pretty fast-moving place in some regard. Um, whereas China, you know, is a larger, more lumbering place. I think where that differs is, like, the building of large structures and monuments, which dictators have always been really good at, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you you got to give the Chinese credit as well for their innovation in, in recent years. Um, yeah, that's true. Um, that is true. from a technical perspective, um, they have some of the best scientists and engineers in the world, you know? Um, so, so I don't think we can necessarily say, I mean, I do think like a lot of the growth that we've seen in the Chinese economy has come from essentially like stealing American IP and, um, you just know, copying, just blatantly copying it. Yeah. Um, but there's Not also, it, but okay. yeah. There's also massive innovation happening in in China, and there's a lot of like great work being done. A lot of like again, world beating scientists and engineers, and and yeah. even business people. Um, where it gets a little more muddy, you know. But but I do think still this general attitude of like, you know, being uh, adventurous beyond what is even reasonable to do. Right, constantly trying to push the boundaries and grow. I mean, there is. I do see a lot of parallels uh, to the American approach in that, you know? Yeah, though I wonder. Yeah, because it's, it's, you know, it's definitely the American ethos, but how much is it the American reality today, you know? That's a very good point. I mean, there's a lot of people who are, you know, don't do anything adventurous at all, you know? They, yeah eat at Applebee's, they eat at McDonald's, they go to their job every day, they like go home, they flip on the cable TV. Yeah. Their kids are playing video games all night. Meanwhile, the Chinese kids are getting like tracked across video games in their like state logged like game time checker and if they go over like a couple of hours they get cut off. Their TikTok is filled with like videos praising like studying and science and engineering <laughs> and our tiktok is filled with like t teenagers shaking ass and shit like that it's yeah. like pooping in a butterfinger wrapper <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know it's it's um it's it's not it's not great it, it it's a tough one um Yeah, but actually this raises an interesting question of like, a lot of American elites, like Ray Dalio, the way he frames it is, 
he's like, hey, the Chinese just have a different like relationship to their people. Their 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 government is more like a stern dad, um, which I think has something to do with his his personal financial interests, <laughs> um, as well as just a general desire for like stability, which a communist government provides. Yeah, like you do your handshake deal with the communist government, you're a billionaire. They make sure that there are no rabble rousers. That you know, um, instead of like being able to be pushed around by all these different people, you just have to contend with like one organization that wants like a, a narrower set of things from you. Yeah. Um, you don't have to deal with the, the messiness of like a democratic government like pushing you around, or you know, of um, all the protests and stuff like that that might come up here. Right. Um, and in Athens, something similar happened towards the end of the war, where basically, like, Athenian elites, like, killed all the representatives of the people, uh, reached out to Sparta, and, like, converted, like, their democracy into an oligarchy um, in order to, like, protect stability. Um, and, yeah, I just think there there is some parallel where, like, Chamath is, like, no one cares about the Uyghurs. Yeah. Did you see that video? I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Oh my god. It was dude. so bad. Because he thinks so we're bad. all on the same page. He's like, yeah, like, no one cares. Like, he's like, I'm going to say the thing that everyone's thinking. Like, but, like, no, I don't, I'm not thinking that. Yeah, You're I'm not, not thinking, thinking that. that. No, dude. That's, I mean, <laughs> come on, man. What the hell? Like, that's not below, like, my threshold. Yeah. It sounds like a genocide. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I I do have a problem with that. Yeah, like, I don't know. It's like, I also, yeah, I have a problem with that. I have a problem with the Saudis, like, uh, assassinating journalists. Like, yeah, it's, it's not good. Like, this is bad. Just because it's good for your financial interest. Doesn't mean it's good for our society or just good in general, you know? Right. Like, yeah, it's, 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 like, really horrible to see, and I think, you know, I mean, it's not just Jamal. It's like again, Ray Dalio. Uh, literally, he's like, America has lost. We we're in decline. This is the Chinese century. The Chinese are what we should try to emulate. That's it. <laughs> and I'm like, I think a lot of people voted for Trump because like he his thing was make America great again, right? So what he's saying is, he's saying no to the decline, right? And you know, he he's corrupt. He had a lot of problems. He you know was self-aggrandizing um but there are a lot of people who wanted to hear that message of like we're not just gonna like slide into oblivion like the europeans drinking wine and like working three hours a day yeah if i wanted to do that i just moved to london <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly um work at a bank <laughs> yeah is that what they do there I don't know. I mean, it's, people do banking in London, right? I mean... Yeah, yeah. I, I just, like... I don't know what their banking work culture is. Like, I'm sure... I think it probably depends on the type of bank. I, and... I'm sure the banking work culture is, like, the banking work culture anywhere in the world where it's atrocious and they work in, like, the same, like, skyscrapers downtown and just, like, work, like, 100 hours a week and eat at Michelin star restaurants a lot and shit just like that. Yeah. 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 Those people work hard. Oh, I will give them that all you finance people y'all y'all know how to work yeah it's pretty ridiculous yeah yeah and and i mean yeah it, it's interesting 
It's interesting, like, what scratches different people's itch. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, so I'm, I'm going to be like the people of Milos, and I'm going to call out to, to Chamath and, and Ray Dalio. There, there actually is right and wrong, and, <laughs> and we should invoke that. And genocide is bad. Yeah. And, um, you know... Just because you've invested a few hundred million in China doesn't mean that you should not have any sort of uh, opinion on uh, human rights catastrophes. It's uh, yeah, it's kind of seedy. Yeah, it is, and I mean, I would also say, like you know, even if it's not just your personal financial stake, my suspicion is it also has something to do with just like social stability and order. You know, like if you're happy and you've got your nest egg and you're good to go, a more stable society just like benefits you, right? Even right. if it's at the cost of freedom. Um, yeah. And I just think like, I don't know, like, personally, I think the freedom is more important. Yeah, I personally I would agree. I would definitely agree. I mean, Yeah. But then what they'll say is they'll be like, hey, you know, the U.S., like, mass incarceration and, like, imperialism and, you know, we, we go overseas, like, you know. And the answer is, like, yes. It's, like, not perfect. There's a lot of things that need to be improved. Yeah, that shit's bad. Like, yeah, it's all... Good. Let's yeah. improve it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, what? Yeah. In China, that's not the... Like, this conversation wouldn't be happening in China. No, our, our podcast would get pulled. yeah. Uh, for sure it would get pulled yeah and we'd be freaking disappeared if we you know were at all important <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean they can disappear Jack Ma they can disappear literally anyone yeah I mean Jack Ma as well as like you know like professors at top Chinese universities and like you know just anyone like that tennis star yeah yeah they just get disappeared yeah, it's, 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 it's just like fucked up yeah yeah yeah, like yeah, I mean we have our share of problems and and we should fix those. I think they're they're just different. Yeah, they are, and I also think like just because we have our share of problems doesn't mean we shouldn't like try to you know do what's right. Yeah, you know, like um, like General Grant is a good example of this, where he's like a really imperfect person. You know, like he had a lot of issues with alcohol, especially when he was like away from his wife. Um, at one point he did like some anti-Semitic stuff. Um, so should he have just been like, you know what? I'm not perfect. It's, it, no one's perfect. We just need to like, let the slavery continue. <laughs> 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 like I've been boozing, you know? Well, I mean, the thing was, there were tons of people in the North who did believe that because of the stability, because of maintaining the status quo, because they could continue getting like textiles from the South, you know? And, yeah. So, I think the good thing is generally throughout American history, at least slightly over 50% of the time, the side of, like, we should try to do what's right has won. I would agree. Um, And and I hope we maintain that and we don't listen to fucking Chamath. Chamath, I know I'm probably losing funding from you in the future, but honestly, fuck you, dude. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, fuck you, Jamal. 
<laughs> we like your activation strategy at Facebook, but just stay in your lane a little bit. Or, or, I mean, just fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Living on the edge. <laughs> Love is gonna hire like a Chinese hitman. <laughs> He's gonna set one of the bot farms on on us. Yeah, we. <sighs> We know a couple of people who who almost joined the bot farm at this point. <laughs> but um, you know, another example of this is like the British elite in World War Two, right? Where the upper classes were um, very pro appeasement, uh, if not like pro Hitler. Yeah. Um, and the lower class, who like yes, they don't have a lot of resources at risk. What they do have though is they have like a se- a common sense grasp over right and wrong and they have their their pride um and you know they also have a lot of like perhaps like disarray right and disruption and violence in their lives more so than the upper class already so they're like hey stuff is shit fine but like we have our we know who we are we know what our values are and we're gonna go and fight for them you know yeah um so, I mean, I don't think that's, like, a perfect analogy, because obviously, like, Winston Churchill was part of the upper class. I don't think it's a simple class-based thing. Um, but I do think, generally speaking, like... Generally, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say, generally speaking... Virtues... Generally speaking, people in the lower class and middle class have more of a common sense morality, uh, more patriotism, and less to lose um, by doing the right thing in these types of situations, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think they definitely have less to lose, and they have more desire to see change in the system because, like, you know, Ray Dalio or Chamath or, or these people are fairly insulated from everything you know yeah they can kind of make their world the way that they want it to be at least in terms of like their day-to-day life yeah Mm -hmm. um and the average person doesn't have the ability to do that um so when there are things that are going wrong you know they can't just change them necessarily themselves they have to build you know they have to join or, or build a social movement to try to affect change at a societal level um so yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. Um, so let's see here. Another interesting dynamic during this war is just like, just proxy wars. So Athens and Sparta, like, they have all these like allies and within allied cities, they have confederates um, and collaborators and conspirators for both sides. And you see, like, you know, revolutions take place funded by either side. And they're usually disastrous um, and extremely violent. And they follow this, like, pattern. And if we ever do... I think we, we eventually we will do reflections on the revolution in France, or at least I'd like to. And you'll see this similar dynamic. Um, so you're saying this is kind of like, like CIA slash KGB type like proxy wars going on in the Hellenic world between Athens and Sparta. Absolutely, yeah. Interesting. Oh, 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 I think I actually found this. 
Did I actually find this? Oh no, this is the uh, yeah, this is the overthrow of democracy by the Athenian elite. So they have these groups of younger men who band together and like assassinate the leaders of the people. Um, you know, like purple hair, Molotovs, <laughs> and then you know they freaking. Um, the fear and the sight of the number of conspirators closed the mouths of the people, you know? They didn't venture to rise in opposition because they just didn't... They didn't feel like there were other people who held their views. Mm. So a small but vocal minority who engaged in violence kind of, like, took control of, like, Athens at this time, like we were saying. Um, funded by powerful forces um, in order to uh, render helpless... The majority of the people and kind of just like yeah so the goal here was basically to to end the war uh yeah the goal was to first of all like end the war but end it as like an oligarchy okay so convert athens to an oligarchy and then end the war interesting yeah and when you say oligarchy just like substitute for dictatorship in modern terms yeah because that's effectively what it is right like sparta has a king and a set of oligarchs under that king. So it's like a dictatorship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely an authoritarian uh, form of government, whether it's a single person who's in charge or a small group of people that can unilaterally make decisions. Yeah. I don't think is, is too... It's not really a distinction that we need to draw for these purposes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the point is, like, you know, there's... Um, the violence of the state being employed by one or a small group of people, like, with no recourse for, like, regular people, you know? Yeah. Or little recourse. Um, I'm trying to find this, like, really cool line um, where the Spartans and the Athenians are, like, facing off. The Spart- Spartans are, like, pretty interesting, though, for sure. Um, because they're, like, the Athenians are giving this big speech before a battle and it's like super long and the Spartans basically just say you know we know that no speech ever makes up for careful preparation and that's it that's all they say <laughs> <laughs> so like they're 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 pretty like just badass in general the Spartans are yeah they're yeah. just like men of few words like you know extremely like well trained constantly just like training um and yeah, it's interesting to see like the differences in the culture. It's like uh, it's like three hundred the movie. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, I think Dan Carlin at one point mentioned that another name for Sparta is Laconia, mm-hmm. and the term laconic comes from there. So it's like people who speak like people from Laconia. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, so that like Clint Eastwood man a few words thing is like was very much an aspect of uh, Spartan culture. Yeah. So another major, um, major aspect of this war, or major episode in this war that people kind of reference and talk about is the Sicilian expedition. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of reasons why. One reason why is just simply, um, Basically, partway through the war, Athens opened a second front in Sicily, and it was far away from, like, 
their core theater of operations, and it diverted a massive amount of resources, arguably like lost in the war. Um, Were there Spartans in Sicily? Nope. So why, who was in Sicily and why did they go there? So there are various like factions in Sicily and some Sicilians came to them to be like, hey, support us and like we can, you know, set up a pro-Athenian like regime across the island. Um, And then essentially there was a big debate about it and these political demagogues, uh, specifically Alcibiades, who's like the political demagogue of all political demagogues, uh, putting his personal ambition above like the success of Athens. Mm-hmm. He argues for this like super, you know, vehemently because he's like, hey, we're going to like protect our flank, even though it's super far away and like nowhere near our theater of operations. There's no indication that the Spartans have any interest there or they're going to attack us or anything. Um, and he's like, hey, we're going to go there. We're going to win. It's not going to be that hard. We're going to come back and we're going to have more resources and, and people and we're going to be able to defend ourselves better. Um, and a guy called Nicias, who's like this other senior politician who's, um, you know, more like takes a more conservative approach to things. Mm-hmm. He's like, we shouldn't go there. Uh, we shouldn't go there. It's a waste of resources, waste of treasure. So what ends up happening is the way he puts it, he's like, if we were going to go there, we need this massive army. We need a huge Navy. It's a terrible idea. And like what everyone hears is, it makes them even more excited about it. They're like, okay, we'll raise this massive army, this huge army. <laughs> and they, they put him in charge of it. Oh, no. So they put the person who's, like, least, like, like who completely disagrees with this in charge of it. Um, and he, he, like, is to co-lead this with Alcibiades, who him and Alcibiades do not get along at all. Um, and at this point, Alcibiades is, like, under investigation, too, by, like, the authorities. <laughs> so Alcibiades is trying to escape Athens by going to Sicily. Oh my god. So they raise this massive fleet with like tons of resources. Like most of their like navy and like most of their army goes to Sicily. Um, and it's just like way harder than they think. And they yeah. get bogged down and like mired in Sicily. Partway through this, Alcibiades disappears. So he's like recalled to Athens to like stand trial. On the way to Athens, he disappears. He shows up in Sparta. Of course. He defects the Spartans. And uh, by the way, along the way, he gives the Athenian war plans to, to the Sicilians. <laughs> so this is a guy who like has been pushing for war this whole time. And not just that. Multiple times prior to this, like Athens and Sparta almost came to like a peace. But Alcibiades screwed it up by being like, you know what, we can get more, we should push further. Um, Interesting. Yeah. You wonder what, like, was going through the guy's head, you know? I mean, I get that it's just self-interest, but, like, that unabashed, you know, commitment to putting yourself over others to the extent that, like, you know that you are signing, like, basically, like, the death warrants of thousands of your fellow countrymen, you know? Um... I mean, that's crazy. I can't imagine doing that, you know? Like, yeah, that's insane. Like, these are your, these are your people, you know? Like, you're, to, to prolong a war for just personal gain, I mean, I guess it's been done countless times in history, but it just seems like such a crazy thing to do to me. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it, it is really insane. It is really insane. Um, and, I mean, this is one of the questions about democracy versus dictatorships, right? Is in a democracy where we have politicians vying for personal ambition and, you know, potentially financial gain as well. Um, can you ha- can you have good leadership at all? Um, and I think you know this election, the last election, there are a lot of people in this country who are really great, right? Like mm-hmm. we can each name a dozen people who are extremely talented, great leaders, extremely intelligent, experienced, right? Yeah. Not only do they not become leaders in this country, like political leaders, they're not even running. They would probably not even consider running. No. Yeah. Exactly. And like, so, I mean, I think we've seen that leadership vacuum here. Whereas like, say what you will about Xi Jinping, he's a smart guy. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, in in Athens actually you saw the same thing where like, there's this great statesman Pericles. And, you know, he's, like, leading the Athenians very effectively through his, like, oratory skills and his character and his reputation. He dies, and then you have this influx, this generation of ambitious politicians, personally ambitious politicians, Mm -hmm. who kind of, like, come to the fore and, um, yeah, just, like, really degrade the state. Um, So I guess the question is, as a democracy... Can you prevent that impulse from taking over? And if so, how? Yeah, that was the scariest thing about reading this book for me, honestly. Because, you know, my argument um, against dictatorships has always been like, it's fine right now because you might have a good person in charge. What happens when the next person comes in? Yeah. Right? Like most people can't handle like power like that. Yeah. And Rome is a great example. Um even the like good emperors like would like stab someone in the eye with a quill because they got pissed off one day, you know. Right. Like, Marcus Aurelius is like the only, like there's very few exceptions. Marcus Aurelius being like one of the only ones. Yeah. Yeah, and even he like you know massively persecuted the Christians and had his own issues, but. Right. Um, and was ineffective at times, but. Um, but I guess my my point is like yeah for democracies too like in this book. <clears throat> There aren't that many good leaders uh, who come to the fore in Athens, and the ones who do um, are kind of overwhelmed by the oratory and the promises of like the bad leaders. Oops. Yeah. So, so like Nicias and Alcibiades, like Nicias is a better leader. Nicias actually like brought about peace at one point between Athens and Sparta during the war, and he was right in my opinion. The people are make have different arguments about this, about not going to Sicily. Hmm. But he's screwed over. He's, like, sent there, and they lose eventually. And they get horribly butchered. Yeah. Like, it's, like, a terrible, like, multi-page, like, set of, like, descriptions where they're, like, you know, walking through this place, and, like, they're all collapsing on top of each other, surrounded, just being, like, butchered, and, like, it's it's horrible. Um, and Alcibiades, like, is still alive by the end of this process. He, he I, I think he actually, like... During this, actually, during this period of oligarchy, um, I think he's like in Sparta, I believe, um, and still just kind of hanging out. Yeah. Does he die by the end of this war? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Someone who you want to see 
die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 pretty insane uh, reading through this. And actually, I will say, like, when I see someone who's this like shamefacedly, um, you know, personally ambitious and puts their personal ambition over what's right, I do think Trump is a good example of that. Even though I do agree with his core thesis that we shouldn't just slide into mediocrity and let the Chinese take over the world. Um, yeah. So apparently Alcibiades, after he fled to Sparta and was a strategic advisor for a while, he made powerful enemies there and then defected to the Persians. And then he served as an advisor to the satrap Tissaphernes until Athenian political allies brought about his recall. And then he became an Athenian general again for several years until enemies succeeded in exiling him a second time. So insane. It's like Napoleon, right? Yeah. Napoleon was like a similar, like, you know, guy with nine lives and a lot of ambition and like able to kind of talk his way out of things and like find his way out of things. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. It's crazy that he would, after literally defecting to Sparta and giving the Athenian war plans away, that they would bring him back as a general. It's crazy to think about. Yeah, it is. It, it really, really is. It's amazing that he managed to achieve that, to be honest. Plato has a dialogue called Alcibiades um, that we, we could do on, like, part two of this. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because it's, like, interesting insight into, like... What he's trying to reveal to Alcibiades in that dialogue, um, it's between Pericles and Alcibiades, and he's trying to reveal that like Alcibiades doesn't understand the work of government or what justice is or anything, even though he thinks he does. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's an interesting dialogue because it kind of makes you wonder too, like how much of this do I understand? You know, how flawed is my understanding of these things? You know. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so the Sicilian expedition, one other thing that's interesting about the Sicilian expedition is this this case study, like the Peloponnesian War first became prominent in the war colleges during Vietnam, uh, partially because it was easier to talk about the Sicilian expedition than it was to talk about Vietnam. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, so they kind of used it as a proxy to be able to talk about something that's like really difficult because, you know, a lot of like men were lost. Um, a lot of people had put a lot of like time and effort into that war and it ended up, you know, being lost. Um, so, yeah. So Vietnam uh, is an interesting analogy because it's another example where the political factions and the fact that they control the war plans led to the deaths of just like thousands of people that didn't have to fucking die oh yeah um and it's just like you know if you, if you go and you read the accounts of many of the generals and shit they're just like it's the most horribly mismanaged thing and like the the white house knew for years that they needed to end the war but they just didn't think it was politically expedient to do so so yeah they didn't you well, know that speaks to alcibiades right right yeah yeah um but it's all the way up and down i mean in vietnam there's a lot of careerism like in the officer corps as well and like and, and there's there's some modern wrinkles too like you know McNamara's fallacy where basically like you're looking at things statistically 
and you're using like all these um you know fancy approaches but you have no understanding of what's going on on the ground so one example is in order to get more men into the armed forces like mcnamara created this program where they let like very low iq people into the armed forces Mm -hmm. and what this meant in practice was like like it was like people who couldn't tie their shoelaces were like people who like didn't even realize they were going to war or stuff like that and a lot of these people like had a very hard time on multiple levels like their casualty rate was way higher um like again they just didn't know where they were going or what they were doing or like what's going on like they're like mentally like um you know like disabled yeah you know um that's crazy. And they, they both got a lot of abuse from, like, their fellow soldiers, but also their fellow soldiers were just, like, struggling to keep them alive and figure out what to do. They, they um, you know, had to be kind of, like, sheltered by their fellow soldiers, too, a lot of the time. So they had varied experiences, but, yeah, like, one of them um, was in this, like, platoon where the officer was, like, really, like, looking out for him and, like, trying to take care of him. And again, guy was like um, mentally challenged, but the officer got shot, and he, you know, asked where the officer was. He couldn't see him, and one of the soldiers was like, "He's been shot! Like, let him go!" And this guy just like literally walks into enemy fire, like picks the guy up and like walks back and like saves him, you know, at like taking risks that nobody else would take. so a lot of these guys were very like courageous and brave too, but they were just put in a situation that's like unethical for them to ever have been put into. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. anyone in the military would, would would be able to say like that's if you can't tie your shoelaces, you can't be training with a loaded weapon. Yeah, I mean that's crazy. Yeah. Even the training was super dangerous for them. Yeah. Yeah. You know? That's crazy. I mean that's that's insane to think about. I mean Yeah. That was a crazy crazy conflict the vietnam war was yeah i mean you know there's a jocko podcast on that program and like you know how it all like went down and stuff and it's it's horrible yeah damn let's check that out that's one thing i appreciate about his podcast is he does take an unflinching look at some of the mistakes made by the military oh yeah he's not like uh i mean he's obviously somewhat pro-military because he's a navy seal for like a decade or more but, but he'll, he'll, he'll lay it out, though. Yeah. 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 He's like, hey, Sand Creek Massacre, Milai Massacre, you know, um, Abu Ghraib. Like, he talks about all these things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Again, that's one thing that I think is good about America compared to many of uh, other countries in, in, and nations in history. And also, like, you know, um, like, compared in, as compared to China or Russia or anything like that. Because... We can have, like, prominent people with massive followings openly criticizing the decisions of current and past government and military leaders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not that common in history, you know? Like, it's no. much more common to be fucking disappeared for challenging someone than it is to be able to do that and, and be able to retain your platform while doing that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it, that's absolutely true. And if you look at, like, our like self-perception you know um in the mainstream political environment for Mm -hmm. for as an example like there's no one on the left or right who are like hey slavery was good 
right? Or like the Milan massacre was like fine, like you know what I mean? Right. So our self perception is like generally like a little more like self critical, I would say, than Putin, who right. thinks the Soviet Union was like great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, or like Xi Jinping as well. Like their their framing of Chinese history, like I don't know how much they're they're um, you know having public discussions about all the like failures and downfalls of of what, what, everything that went down during the Cultural Revolution. I don't know. I literally don't know. Maybe they are. I think it's highly unlikely because I was talking to my friend who's a tanky and he thinks like the freaking famines weren't real and it wasn't like okay that's Miles fault and shit like that. that that's what i freaking thought dude the the cultural revolution episode of jago's podcast is one of the only ones that i had to like turn off damn yeah because it was just like horrible um which is really saying something because for those of you who don't know like jocko's podcast covers like the full spectrum of human nature mostly very dark aspects of it so like i said sand creek massacre where Native American civilians were like massacred by U.S. soldiers, Milai massacre, the Soviet Union, gulags. Yeah, I mean, I thought the ones that stick out to me as really awful, like just like that really like stuck with me were the gulag archipelago, yeah, where he talks about that one. with Jordan Peterson, and then the... Um, that was an insane one, yeah. There was one where he was talking about ISIS in Syria and what was going on there. Oh my God, yeah, that one was horrible too. It was insane. Yeah, it's crazy that's happening. Like, that shit happened, like, recently. Yeah, and the thing with ISIS is, like, the shit that they're doing is, like, the shit that, like, you you read about in Thucydides and, like, in the ancient world. Like, they'll actually do things that just, like, are completely morally reprehensible, and it's, like, stunning that people, like, human beings can do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like a... I mean, a wild animal wouldn't do the things that, that... these people do or, or like humans have done to each other regularly in history you know yeah yeah no it's true it's, it's a very weird aspect of human nature where it's like you know um this like higher morality that sits on top of this like base layer of reciprocity kinship and self-interest yeah right like the core core of human morality is like kind of the core of like animal morality in a way which is reciprocity kinship and self-interest um but then you have these higher faculties and the higher faculties kind of take you in one of two directions one is um higher order moral reasoning you know broadening your circle of like who is we and, mm-hmm. and what are we entitled to as far as like our rights and privileges and how we should be treated and the other side is sadism right? yeah where you use your higher moral faculties to be like if this is how i can be hurt this is how other people can be hurt and you become increasingly cruel um, so hence, I guess, like the whole, um, heaven and hell concept. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And great album. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Could be heaven or hell. <laughs> <laughs> Go listen to some Dio. Rest in peace, Ronnie James Dio. Yeah. So I found the description of the, the revolution in Corsaira and how Thucydides describes it. And I think... Like, you'll hear similarities between this and a lot of other revolutions. Um, So the Corsairans were engaged in butchering their fellow citizens who they regarded as enemies. The crime was imputed to be attempting to put down the democracy. But really, people were slain for private hatred 
others by their debtors because of monies owed to them. Um, death thus raged in every shape, and as usually happens at such times, there was no length to which violence did not go. Sons were killed by their fathers, and suppliants dragged from the altar or slain upon it, while some were even walled up in the temple of Dionysus and died there. So bloody was the march of the revolution, and the impression which it made was the greater, as it was one of the first to occur, because as we were saying like later on, the whole Hellenic world was convulsed by revolution. Struggles being everywhere made by the popular leaders to bring in the Athenians and by the oligarchs to introduce the Spartans. So right off the bat, that could sound that could be the Cultural Revolution in China, that could be the Bolshevik Revolution, that could be the French Revolution. Yeah, yeah and I mean you can even apply it on a smaller scale to like protests and not revolutions, right? That you could apply that to the January sixth protest mm-hmm. in the Capitol Hill, right? Yeah, and you can apply that to um, what BLM. happened in Minneapolis, yeah. you know, in Portland, in Portland, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Where it's basically like it, it starts from this, you know, political point of view where they're actually trying to affect a specific societal change. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it gets taken by essentially bad actors as an excuse to do whatever the hell they want, right? Like yeah. exert their will on those who are weaker than them. Or those who are stronger than them. Or those who are stronger than them, yeah. Yeah. It's like in the Bolshevik, you know, revolution, like the Kulaks, right? Like, these are not people who are, like, strong, strong. They just have, like, you know, a sheep. Or, like, they have a small house or a small farm. Yeah. Like, they're not, like, Mr. Warbucks from friggin' Annie, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, those guys are are, are targeted. So it might might be, like, you know, your neighbor down the street who has slightly less than you or has slightly more than you. And you're kind of envying them day and day out. Now, here's your pretext to, like, you know, hit them with a brick and take their shit, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 definitely interesting, like... Yeah. yeah. I think it's bad actors, but also our dark side. That, yeah. You know, yeah, I think that's an important thing to not lose sight of, is that, like, we are... Like, the worst of humanity and you are the same. Like... In yeah. a lot of ways, like you yeah. are those people, you know. Um, you're yeah. also the best of humanity, but you represent that entire spectrum of human actions, and and you are capable of amazing things and horrible things, and just average mediocrity as well. Yeah, yeah, especially in situations like this, because like these are these people are not all mentally ill or something. Like these no. are regular people. You know, they're not like making lampshades out of human skin or something. Right. They just have pedestrian day in day out resentments uh personal hatreds you know and personal envy and personal problems like financial problems like they owe someone money um like for jewish people in europe because of the usury laws christians were unable to like be money lenders and Mm -hmm. charge interest so a lot of times jewish people would uh step up to fill that role um and yeah frequently people would revolt and do do violence to them or kick them out of town because they owe them money right right and it's like whose fault is it that you owe them money like you're blaming them for charging you interest you knew the terms of the contract going in right like why why would they just give you money with no interest yeah it it's make their sense. money like yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> so it's like just like people like contending with their own like life choices and their own feelings and emotions like given license to like destroy other people right 
Yeah. yeah. It's very bad. Yeah. Uh, another thing that's interesting here is like words had to change their ordinary meaning and to take that which was now given to them. So reckless audacity came to be considered the courage of a loyal supporter. Um, prudent hesitation became specious cowardice. Moderation was held to be a cloak for unmanliness. Ability to see all sides of a question became incapacity to act. Frantic violence became the attribute of manliness. Ooh, that one hits, you know. Right? Um, it's something you hear more and more these days where people on both sides are, yeah. like, talking shit about moderates, right? As if, like, they're yeah. the, the, the big problem. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's actively harmful. Um interesting and people justify like the violence of their own side but not the violence of the other side right or like dismiss right um yeah it's, it's just interesting or like amplify what's going on on the other side um <clears throat> holy shit dude i shouldn't have eaten those ghost pepper chips in the middle of this podcast like <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're 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 freaking harsh all of you listening, understand what we do for you, okay? I, I ate some of these Paki haunted ghost pepper chips. Not the regular ghost pepper chips. This dude has the haunted ghost pepper chips on hand. And my tongue feels like leathery, but I'm like continuing to have this conversation. <laughs> yeah, there's like a, a heat meter on the back. And it goes from like not hot to hot to freaking hot. And these are like freaking hot. Oh, I wonder how many Scovilles they are. Does it Does it say? Some and someday I want to just get a plain tortilla chip and just spray mace on it and eat it and see like which is hotter. Because <laughs> I think these these are comparable at least. Like, <laughs> like if you spray it at like a distance and you let it dry off, I don't know which will be hotter. This is gonna sound really stupid, but I've always kind of wanted to get maced. <laughs> I think they mace you in the military, or they make you like go into some like chamber with like some kind of like harsh chemical or something as part of the training. Yeah, just to see what it's like, you know? Like, I'm curious, like, how, like, disorientating and, like, uh, debilitating it really is. I imagine it's really awful, though. If you could just crush up some of this dust and just throw it in your own eyes, like, it would be, like... <laughs> it would be pretty much the same, but I don't actually want to do it, you know? Yeah, no. When you put it that way, it's, like, clear how much you don't want to do it, you know? Yeah. So another thing that happens like during this revolution is like the party becomes like the most important thing above everything, including blood. So, and again, like you're saying, it's not just like revolutions where this happens. It can also just be periods of discord. So you hear today people all the time, like cutting off family members over politics. Um, today people are like more than half people like wouldn't want their child to like marry someone of the opposite political orientation um, and in, in, you know, in, in all revolutions too, it's like people rat out, kill, um, and cut off their own family members because the party just becomes, um, supreme. Yeah. I mean, that's very disturbing in general. I mean, it's, it, it's difficult I imagine to not fall into that just because of like the natural human tendency towards tribalism, you know? Um, like forming a group and excluding the other is like a very natural biological response that we've had and it's kept us it kept us safe for like 
tens of thousands of years while we were like wandering the fucking like jungles and deserts of of the earth yeah um but kinship is very fundamental too right so for you know this to overcome kinship is a weird thing it is weird it is weird i think part of it is like the especially in american culture like the less it's less and less necessary to rely on your family right it's the increasing importance of the individual and the ability to choose your community yeah um outside of the family and i think there's pros and cons to that you know like um i think it's good in a way because you do see people who are like you know just to take an example like someone who is you know maybe um trans or gay and grew up in a very conservative family right a deeply religiously conservative family um where now they have the opportunity to like build a community and a life that's more accepting of them outside of their family and they can you know survive and live and have a good rich life yeah but then on the other hand you see people like families being torn apart because like of minor disagreements really over like which like you know, neoliberal party that should be in charge over the other, you know, like, it's like, like, don't get me wrong, there are differences between the parties, but like, I mean, at the end of the day, do any of these politicians really care about you and your fucking family? Or are they just Alcibiades, you know, for the most part? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely Alcibiades. (laughs) Exactly. So like, there are very few that that are. um, Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just important to like think about you know what's actually important and are you really in a situation where it's like yeah like you and your family have irreconcilable differences and you simply cannot accept each other's way of lives or do you just like kind of disagree on this one subject because i think a lot of like the kind of disagreeing on one subject is being misconstrued as like irreconcilable differences and like fundamentally opposing ways of life yeah, yeah, and I think also, like, part of it's about control, right? Like, if your yeah. family, like, you know, disagrees with some aspect of the way you live, but doesn't have the power or doesn't try to control the way you live, I think that should be adequate, right? Like, you don't, like, you may not be able to, like, get them to come around on some things. That doesn't mean that you don't have that relationship and that bond. Because um, your moral intuitions just may be different. Your priorities may be different. Also, they might just be from a completely different era. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, so you just may never convince them, you know? Yeah. 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 And that's okay, you know? Yeah. It can be okay, depending on the situation, but it's like, we're so like, I feel like we're encouraged to be quick to just like, cut people off um, yeah. and not engage in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to that Chesterton essay where it's like, we do that thinking we're making our world bigger, but we're really making our world smaller. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But that being said, like, don't let yourself just be, like, oppressed, like, by super close-minded family members who are trying to control every aspect of your life or, like, you know, or every day just telling you how much of, like, a sinner you are or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, everybody has to make that own judgment call in their own situations that they're in, but... But if your grandpa's kind of weird about, like, gay people or whatever, like, just talk about other things, maybe, like, you know? Yeah. Like, he's old. Right. Right. And it, and if you, but obviously like, you know, if he's actively like hateful and you are gay, then maybe it's a different calculus, right? Yeah, it's but, your own individual calculus. Yeah. yeah. But just, you know, c- consider it. Consider it. Consider the fact that you know, this person is just wrong about the subject, but they can still be a good person in other ways and and they can still, 
you know, contribute value to your life. You can still have a good relationship with them. You can still learn things from them. Um, you can still enjoy your time with them and you yeah. can still rely on them in your time of need and, and vice versa, even though you have fundamental disagreements about certain things and you just have to be able to accept that, you know, it, it's okay to disagree. Yeah. It's okay to disagree. I mean, I think that's um, something that people forget these days. It's like, it's, it's actually like, it's just fine for us to not agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think on most things that's true. And also, like, I think information segregation kind of makes people have more certitude. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, like, you know, if you're listening to only, like, left-wing sources, you're cutting out people who, out of your life, who are left-wing or vice versa. Increasingly, everything you hear rationalizes your viewpoint and you feel more and more certain that you're Right. Right. In reality, there's like another group of people who are making counter arguments, feeling just as assured of their position. Um, so I think you know we should all just like be a little more aware of probably like the complexity uh, of the issues out there and like how fallible we are. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, which I think is 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 a lot of times just like missing um, from the conversation these days. Yeah. Okay, so ultimately, you know, what are a few of your big takeaways from this book? Because you, you really, you know, ground through this, like... Massive tome. Massive <laughs> tome, you know, yeah. for our benefit, right? Yeah. Me and the listeners of this podcast. So yeah. so what, what are a few of the big takeaways that you think we should, we should leave with? Um, so actually related to what I, what I was saying about certitude, um, disciplined thinking and being able to, like quantify uncertainty to a certain extent or just at least like trying to demarcate what's known and what's not known and see your assumptions is crucial strategically Mm -hmm. how big is sicily how many people do they actually have men and material what types of weapons do they have how fragmented are they politically you know or this competitor we're taking on how big are they really how do they respond to people entering their market um have they had success in the past like you know with disruptive innovation and creating new products to take on competitors. Like, throughout this book, a lack of clarity and a lack of disciplined thinking leads to, like, disasters. Yeah. And that indiscipline can be, like, overconfidence. It can be certitude because you're surrounded by people who are only saying what you want to hear. It can be um, emotion. So, for example, when the Spartans with their massive land army come outside the gates of Athens and start destroying people's homesteads, the inclination of like young Athenian men is to like go out and fight them. Sparta is like, I mean, they're Spartans. They're like some of the best land warriors to like ever have lived. Mm-hmm. Like still known to this day for how good they are. Right. It's like disastrous to like meet them on the field of battle, like in a land battle most of the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you let emotion run wild, you go out there, you're putting your weakness against their strength and you get destroyed. Yeah. So... Yeah, I think I think that was a huge one for me. It's like strategic assessment, clarity, disciplined thinking, um, very very important for success. Yeah, not something that is easy to do, and not something that most people do. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with both. I would agree with both. But I think there's you know there's a stack of books that I think would make someone better at it read and reread over time and kind of chipping away. I don't think you'll ever be perfect at it. But we could talk about that stack on the podcast sometime. 
Yeah. It's like how to decide um, is, is, is one. Super forecasting is another one. Um, the rationality community, like these like, you know, online intellectuals, they have a lot of books uh, along these lines. Thinking fast and slow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. No, that's awesome. I mean, I, th- I think it is super interesting, you know, to look back at the history and, and look at, you know, like things like people will always talk about, you know, the U.S. and their proxy wars and the CIA and stuff. It's kind of sobering in a way to realize that like 2,500 years ago, the Athenians and the Spartans were doing the exact same shit. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And people have been doing that shit forever. They didn't, you know, like obviously it looked differently given what the world was at that time, but like the themes and the tactics are like very similar. Like a, a lot of stuff has not changed for all the change that we've seen. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of really interesting to balance like balance that right like we have this like humans are fundamentally the same that they were as they were a hundred thousand years ago mm-hmm. nothing has really changed from an evolutionary standpoint but on the flip side in the last 100 years 200 years 300 years We've seen massive societal upheaval and technological change, the likes of which we've never seen before in human history. Um, but we're still the same. Yeah. So it's important to not throw out the history, but it's also you know interesting to see how rapidly things are changing around us um, every day. It's it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Like, what is the same and what's different? So as an example, like in the Peloponnesian War. It was considered to be a very provocative act to build a wall. So building a wall um, would basically, I mean, they had very rudimentary siege weapons. They're, you know, using spears, slings, um, things of that nature. So if you build a wall, it basically means, like, the other side loses deterrence. So it's almost like a nuclear-type scenario where, like, today if you build, like, a, a missile defense program, right yeah or, or put up um yeah just like anti-missile technologies like it, it's breaking down nuclear deterrence and it's like very prog- provocative mm-hmm. so that technological aspect and that aspect of deterrence like existed back then right so the just dynamic looked, is very similar yeah that's actually super interesting um but in one way it's just a wall and in the other way it's like advanced you know laser targeted missile defense systems yeah yeah and building a wall could be taken as a pretext for invasion like if you were making progress on a wall, <laughs> because it's like once that wall is built, we're not gonna be able to get in there, and like they'll be able to get in here, so we have to go. Didn't Athens build like a wall around Athens and then all the way to the coast and yeah. around another city? Yeah, to... they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that did Sparta use that as a pretext to invade, or were they already at war at that time? Um, they Athens. I don't think they were in this war when that wall was built. Okay. They might have had some conflicts before before the Peloponnesian War, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think they were in this war at that time. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah. So they had that wall already during this war. Yeah, but it was a provocative act to build it, I bet. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's a guy called Themistocles who, like, was championing that, and then he got ex- exiled and sent away for some other shit. They really like exiling people there. Yeah, they exiled uh, Thucydides. Why? Um, because, like, he didn't do that well in a battle. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. Um, yeah, it's kind of insane. But but I think uh, the pretext for the Peloponnesian War was like... Let me, let me see if I can get this right. An Athenian ally and a Spartan ally had like a conflict. I know that's very vague, but it's like a 450-page book. And yeah. I've been like reading more at the end of the book. No, that's totally fine. I mean, so... So, so wait, let's see here, so... Also, that's 450 pages of like textbook-sized pages. Yeah, no, that that's very true. It's if this was printed in, in a normal book form, it would probably be like a thousand pages. All right, here we go. So the first cause of the war, um, basically that the Athenians fought against the Corinthians with the Corsairans when the Corsairans and the Corinthians had a treaty. So the thing that strikes me about this is like it seems like kind of a relatively, um, you know, minor set of events that sparks this massive conflict, right? So similar to World War One, where it's like it was already like a powder keg. Right, like there was a lot of tension already built up. Right, and all it took was this infraction, this like relatively small infraction in the greater scheme of things, to like spark this huge conflagration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds almost like like you know World War One. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's one thing that I've uh, I was nervous about, and I've been glad to see so far with this Ukraine conflict is, you know. Would all the entangling alliances lead to us getting, you know, pulled in or, or other Western nations getting pulled in? Um, yeah, it's, yeah. It's been, I, I'm glad that we are taking action on it with the sanctions and stuff, but we are not putting boots on the ground in foreign conflict. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that... It's a very complicated situation. Yeah. I think it's a very complicated situation with, with no clear answers. I think I, I'm glad for that, too. Um, for, for a host of different reasons, but the reason I think it's complicated is like, okay, so let's say we, we sanction the hell out of the Russians, and the Russian people rise up and they replace Putin, right? Mm-hmm. Under Putin is like all the, are, are all these oligarchs, right? If there isn't a centralized authority in Russia, what's the state of nuclear proliferation in Russia? Yeah. So there's one, right? Um, also, like, if Russia is to move forward and attack one of the NATO countries, like Estonia or Latvia, and we don't do something, what does that do as far as signaling to the Russians, like, that this is actually a real alliance and that we're going to stand by the strictures of the alliance, right? The, the red line concept. Well, I think if they do attack a NATO country and they invoke, what is it, Article 4, mm-hmm. um, we will have to go to into a conventional war with Russia. It will be our only option. I disagree. Yeah? I disagree because actually Ukraine, uh, Russia, and the United States had, had an agreement um, in the 90s which was like, we're going to give up our nukes to the Russians, but we're going to do so under the pretext that like, they're going to respect our national sovereignty, and if they don't, the United States will come to our aid. That's fair, but I think it's a lot easier to break one treaty than it is to, like, as the U.S., right? 
it's easy for us to not follow one treaty with one nation. Whereas if we don't abide by the rules of NATO, I think we would see a defection of, I mean, what would be the point of NATO to these countries otherwise? Why would they not defect to the Russians early and say, screw NATO, you're not, the U.S. isn't going to protect us. So we may as well try to get in line with the Russians or the Chinese. It would be a big opportunity for the Chinese to form an alliance there. I mean, I think geopolitically, we would be in real trouble if it turned out that NATO was a sham and we weren't going to abide by um, the rules, you know? Well, I guess guess the question question there is, like, does the lack of will to fight in America, because we've been bogged down in wars for so long, combined with the ambition of politicians here and the, the self-protective instincts of politicians trump the geopolitical you know needs and reality of the situation and it's hard to say it's hard to say i mean it seems to me that the one of the conclusions from this book is that it kind of comes to down to like who you have in leadership at that time and if you get lucky or not kind of similar to like like you're saying earlier it's kind of similar to like the issues with the dictatorship or the authoritarian government where like you're kind of at the mercy of whoever happens to be in leadership it seems like it's kind of similar here like we're at the mercy of whether we happen to get a politician who is you know both charismatic and appealing to the people and you know has deep is deeply principled and like cares about this nation and where we're going and manages to leverage both of those things into a leadership position. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, on the national stage, I don't see any politicians like that right now. Um, yeah. certainly not at the top uh, yeah. of either party. Nope. Um, no. So if you're out there, please go into government. I'm not going to do it. So I need you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the problem is when you say that, like, who's hearing it, right? The people who are hearing it are all like, yeah, that's me. It's not you, buddy. If I think it's you, it's probably not you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Eisenhower had to be asked, like, 74 times to be president. Like, they, they like, had, like, concerts, like, to, like, sing to him to, like, get him to be president. He, like, said no so many times. Yeah, or, they, like, like, George Washington. Him over. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's... We'll just have to see, but I think I I don't see the Russians continuing um, past Ukraine at least right now um, because I mean it's been like devastating to the Russians. Yeah, like they've lost like almost ten thousand people, and um, their international reputation is completely in the shitter. Like the only people who are like saying good are like you know the Brazilian president, um, the Iranians. Uh, the Venezuelans. Yeah. Not even the Chinese. The Chinese are just kind of... The Chinese sanctioned them too, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Which is yeah. crazy. Yeah. And and I think I think that's the other thing about like Sicilian expedition, right? If we put boots on the ground in Europe, to me, that's a Sicilian expedition. Yeah. I, I just China don't see is. how we can get around NATO. Yeah. I mean, I just by breaking the law... I guess, like, so So from the Chinese perspective, right, or the perspective of a potential conflict with China, 
what would stop so if like again we're just like wargaming right now basically but like say russia invades estonia right yeah. and estonia invokes article four yeah. we say no it's not in our national interest to help you we're not going to help you why would china not come in to estonia latvia all of these countries and say hey nato is a sham organization the u.s is not going to protect you if you're attacked by foreign aggressors why don't you join our new alliance that we're forming leave nato and we will actually protect you they probably will say that um and but but that's the thing like i i agree with you from like a, a like geopolitical standpoint we just have to see like you know if the political quote-unquote political will is there to do the things we need to do right it's it's like this like concept of um what's it called um just like suboptimal equilibrium kind of yeah you know where you can be in a situation that like is is not ideal but you're still like drawn into that situation just because of your like local optimization yeah you know um but you know that may not happen too yeah yeah i guess like you know hopefully it doesn't come to that and um you know we'll hope for the best but i just like i don't know I think it would be deeply troubling to me if we get to a place where, you know, a lot of our our international influence has been built on, you know, this idea that we are going to be the protectors of the downtrodden, right? We are going to, you know, if if you may, if you have a democracy, if you have um, a government structure based on these enlightenment ideals based on this this liberalism um then you know america is a champion for you and your government and your people and what you stand for and we have nato for that and and all these other things i agree yeah um i think it's very dangerous if we just throw that out the window i mean i think that's opening the floodgates to basically you know the um i mean it's opening the floodgates to what you were saying like ray dalio thinks is already happening which is yeah. like the um degrading of these liberal the these liberal ideals and and the return to you know authoritarianism as the default um and the you know monopoly on state violence um just expanding yeah no i, th- I think i think you're 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 totally right about that i agree i definitely i agree with you Ugh. it's just like okay and I'm not trying to be pessimistic. Honestly, I think I think things will be fine because I don't think Russia is going to invade Estonia yeah. or Latvia. Because I just think you know it's. I mean, a- after if they are able to take Ukraine, the amount of resources it's going to take them to keep Ukraine yeah. and administer Ukraine is going to be so vast. Like they're, I don't think they're just going to have the ability to 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 move forward. Or yeah, yeah. and the cost benefit analysis. I mean. What would they really gain by doing that is the other thing, you know? Yeah. Like, with the Ukraine, they now have, like, extended their sphere of influence, right? So, like, you have Belarus and Ukraine, and they've kind of, like, pushed out this buffer of, like, almost proxy states for themselves, right? But, like, you know, you start pushing that further and further, and it's like you're trying to capture territory that's, like, totally surrounded on all sides except for one by, like, you know nato countries right on the one hand and then on the other hand like it's they're already getting so condemned by the international community for what they're doing in ukraine and over there they can make the argument that like 
Ukraine used to be a part of Russia. There are many ethnic Russians living in Ukraine and the East and the South. They're like these separatist parts of the Ukraine of Ukraine that are, um, you know, they want to join Russia, but the Ukrainian government is oppressing the people there. They can make, like you said, it was fear, honor and interest. Yeah. yeah. Um, they can make arguments for honor. They can make arguments for fear. They can make arguments for interest for Ukraine, but can they make those arguments for Latvia or Estonia? I mean, I think it's much more difficult. Well, I think the interest piece is is gonna start to like fall apart uh, because I just think like the cost benefit, like you're saying, kind of skews. But you can make the same kinds of arguments about fear, right? Where you're like, hey, the Russian border starts at the edge of where Ukraine used to be. Right on our border are all these like NATO states. Like it's it's really like dangerous for us. It's like, you know. Um, St. Petersburg is only like a few hundred miles away from like NATO territory. We have to like do something. So you can make those types of arguments. You can also be like, um, like generally like Putin's been speaking in these terms of like the West is out to get us. Yeah. And I don't remember which podcast it was on, but it was like, I remember hearing like American and NATO military exercises are all like defensive, um, in Europe. Like they're, they're very much like if Russia attacks, this is what we'll do. Russian military exercises are like, we're going to bomb Stockholm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like insane how they like are able to like rationalize that like the West is trying to like, you know, um, at least like violently destroy. I think what the West really wants is to sell more burgers over there. Yeah. Like that was the whole thing, right? Like the Berlin Wall fell and we got a McDonald's over there. And like that was the, that was like, I mean, there was a fundamental, very deep fundamental difference between the Soviets and us. So that's definitely but modern russia i feel like we're not like really out to get them no no they're a little bit the boogeyman yeah uh, but that's yeah although mcdonald's on that note did pull out of russia completely i don't know if you saw that oh really they're shutting down every mcdonald's in russia well the russian government has also blocked instagram and facebook like tons of u.s tech companies are pulling out um tons of companies like just across the border pulling out right i think financial service providers have been like pulling out you know what would be interesting to see relative to this? Yeah. So the reason they're able to do that is because the Russian market is such a small percentage of their revenue, right? Yeah. If this was China, how different would this look, right? Because right. Facebook, mm-hmm. Apple, you know, Amazon, they cannot pull out of China. Yeah, I mean, nor can, like, tons of companies, right? Right. Hollywood and... The NBA. I mean, the NBA is hilarious in a way because, like, LeBron James is one of the biggest, like, Chinese shills in, like, American, like, sphere. Yeah, it's (laughs) It's, like very ridiculous. It's like, what the fuck? It's just ridiculous. Like, yeah, it's it's really depressing. I mean, what's, what's really, like, scary about it, too, is, like, a lot of our influence as a country has come from our media and our, our like you know athletic sector and our business sector right like the, the blue jeans thing was like a very real thing blue jeans and rock and roll like this stuff was banned in the Soviet Union it was like coveted yeah it's like a symbol of freedom like you know a lot of people from like that generation from the Soviet Union like remember like their first pair of like jeans that they like you know got at great personal risk um, as like a like really key memory whereas now it's like our our business and media interests are just like kind of more shallow and amoral than they used to be and i just feel like they will say and do anything to be more successful yeah you know uh, whether that's hey they like a broken clock like 
has the right time twice, right? Like, whether it's, like, saying the right things about the Georgia, like, voting rights laws, right? Yeah. Or if it's, like, selling cigarettes to suffragettes. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, women's rights, you gotta smoke like the men. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Or if it's supporting a communist dictatorship that is, like, literally genocidal. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's... Uh, yeah. yeah. It's not good. Yeah. Not to say it was perfect back then, but I, I do think it was a little better. I do think at least they, like, remember what country they're, like, in, you know, and the fact that we have some, again, common sense, base values that we can, like, not live up to together. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. It's interesting stuff, man. Everything changes, but everything stays the same. Yeah. On that note... Thucydides on World War Three. <laughs> hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Oh yeah, wait, uh, real quick. Um, we're working on the app. Um, keep your eyes open, eyes and ears open for that. Um, if you want to give us your thoughts on um, the Peloponnesian War, Russia, Ukraine, China, whatever it is, if you want to call us out for something we said that you don't think is, uh, PC or, or whatever it might be, contact at rdmr.io, hit us up. Or call us out for being too PC. Yeah, or call us out for being too PC, not being anti-Chinese or anti-Russian enough. Um, if you want to tell us that we're actually a Russian bot farm, Contact at rdmr.io. If you are a Russian bot farm, uh, I don't know. I mean, may, can you write iOS apps? Because like we might be able to give yeah, you more gainful some, employment. Well, well, cash free. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> <laughs> can give you some more gainful employment than what you're doing now, and it'll be good for 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 all of us. Um, um anything else anything else the app's looking really good like we're making some serious progress on it um we tried to use it for a few weeks and it sucked shit so we like fixed it yeah made it way better <laughs> yeah yeah we're now working through um that that redesign before it's ready for the for the 1.0 basically um, yeah we're not gonna have you guys use anything that like we wouldn't use and love using and find like great value in so um, we're getting closer to that point and, um, we're gonna have something that, you know, we're proud of that, like, we find, you know, super useful that will turn us into the next Thucydides so we get freaking exiled for <laughs> failure on the battlefield and write an almost unreadable book that's, like, still referenced to this <laughs> A possession for all time. Good thing is it's 2022, so if we get exiled, I mean, I'm going to Belize, I'm going to the Bahamas, you know. Or Brazil for for that, well, maybe maybe not, but probably for that jiu-jitsu. Yeah, you you do that, I'm going to go to the Bahamas. (laughs) (laughs) There's a bunch of, like, Brazilians in in the gym, like, this week, and they don't speak a word of English, but they're, like, really good. That's awesome. I mean, it is their jiu-jitsu. Yeah, they're also, like, very, like, nice where, like, usually, like, you switch off. So, like, you know, I'll practice, like, during the drills, like, I'll practice, like, a choke twice. They'll practice twice. But these guys, like, they don't even practice. Like, they just let me just choke them, like, 74 times in drills, and they just crush me and spark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, are you sure? Like, it's a practice time. They're like, you, yeah, you need to practice more than we do. Yeah, except not, they don't say that because they don't speak a word of English. Except uh, our, like instructor does speak very good English. yeah yeah, yeah. Great. that's Great. awesome yeah yeah 
Are they here for like a tournament or something? Or I guess you don't know because you can't know. talk to yeah, them. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I, I put Duolingo Portuguese on my phone. I'm trying to like... <laughs> but it's not been very helpful. <laughs> you, you need to have like translators like Mr. Beast. Yeah, yeah. You should ask them if they watch Mr. Beast in Brazil. <laughs> I'm sure there's a... I think there is a Brazilian Mr. Beast, right? Yeah, there is. He said that in the, in the podcast. If I watch that, I can like learn... Some Brazilian threw that. <laughs> quote Mr. Beast video. <laughs> All right. On that note, adios. Oh, sorry. One last thing. Just kidding. Uh, just, we just want to say, like, uh, for this podcast, you know, some sources, like, yeah, this is landmark Thucydides, comprehensive guide to the Peloponnesian War. The foreword is great. The illustrations are really helpful. There is a course, a great course called. I believe Masters of War. It's like on history's great strategic thinkers. Uh, a couple of great lectures in there on Thucydides. There's also a 36 lecture course on Thucydides. It's a great course. 36 um, lecture course just on this book? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, people spend like a long time on this book. And this like this book is like still used in like the war colleges today to talk about like, you know, the US and China and you can also see like with Iraq and Afghanistan too, right? Yeah. There's a slight Sicilian expedition flair to some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another thing is, like, Graham Allison has a good talk on the Thucydides trap on YouTube for free. Mm-hmm. So I checked that out, um, and that's all I want to say. Just they, awesome. All those people are know a lot of stuff and are really good. Yeah. So, yeah. Check it out. Peace.